0: Our first presenter, Dr. Atish Chowdhury. Chowdhury. Chowdhury, thank you. Uh, who's going to speak about clinical guidelines, novel therapies, and the constant state of therapeutic uncertainty developing clinical pathways in prostate cancer? His session is supported by an educational grant from Estellus Pharma Global Development. Well, thank you all to the diehards who are here on the morning session of the third day of a three day Congress, and thank you to the organizers for inviting me. Um, so I'll be talking about clinical guidelines, novel therapies, and the constant state of therapeutic uncertainty, developing clinical pathways in prostate cancer. There's quite a lot of content to cover, so we'll see what we get through. Um, I'm a senior physician at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and an uh, instructor in medicine at the Harvard Medical School. And I'm the co-director of the Prostate Cancer Center um, at Dana-Farber and Brigham and Women's. So these are my disclosures. I have research funding from Bayer, and I will be discussing off-label use of medications because it's very relevant to the topics that I'll be getting to. So the learning objectives here are to describe the impact of integrating new and innovative therapies into clinical guidelines and pathways, to summarize the latest clinical safety and efficacy data surrounding next-generation antiandrogen agents for initial treatment of localized hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, and integrate recent therapeutic advances and unique cost considerations into prostate cancer clinical pathways discussions. Let's launch into it. Challenges of expanding oncology care landscape, treating patients in a state of therapeutic uncertainty. And so the background here obviously is that every few months we have uh, new clinical trial data in prostate cancer. How do we incorporate this into our day-to-day practice and how do we incorporate this into the clinical pathways we're using? So, you know, obviously, uh, by the third day of the conference, you know and probably have seen all of this in terms of perspectives on the use of clinical pathways in oncology care. But I think it's very relevant um, to understand that when we're talking about pathways, we're actually talking about a subset of guidelines. So we're, our job and our institution is not to generate, you know, a copy of NCCN guidelines, but to really um Uh, have a uh, framework for our Dana-Farber practice and try to use that to limit unwarranted variability in cost. And so we're going to try to standardize around breast evidence. Um, Again, this is highly supported by our institution. And uh, the critical part here is that these are um, provider-based pathways. So the pathways are not... um, you know, imposed upon us externally, but it's actually the clinicians and the providers who are developing our pathways. And what we're hoping is that um, while uh, pathways um, are necessary for standardization, that they're not intended to cause a cookie-cutter approach to patient care, that we actually want to use it to enhance the appropriate targeted or personalized patient care. So what's been our approach? So, you know, it's, it's... Actually, a little bit more ad hoc than you might uh, anticipate, but certainly we have meetings where we gather to review evidence and support, especially new clinical trial data. And so the level of evidence that we see is from FDA approvals, and even some of the FDA approvals don't have supporting phase three clinical trial data. For example, pembrolizumab um, in misratch repair deficient prostate cancer. We review phase three studies of agents that have not yet received FDA approval, for example, enzalutamide in hormone-sensitive prostate cancer and olaparib for homologous recombination repair deficient um, metastatic uh, castration-resistant prostate cancer that was just reported at ESMO. Uh, We review subgroup analyses that have developed um, and received guideline support. For example, abiraterone in regional disease, um, radiation therapy for low-volume metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, and then what are our institutional common practices based on case series. So, for example, SBRT for oligomets and uh, salvage brachytherapy for local recurrence. And once we review the data, we have a bit of a discussion, and then essentially we vote on what to incorporate into pathways or not and what caveats to put in um, as far as notes within the pathways themselves. So, you know, what are some concerns about uh, clinical pathways in terms of uh, bringing them out to patient care? One of the concerns is, does it limit patient treatment options? However, we try not to do that. We try to list some reasonable options per institutional practice, though the favored option is listed first usually there's a multiplicity of options and it allows some clinical judgment and patient preference considerations. For example, we say candidate four as a, you know, to decide between surgery and radiation and we're not very prescriptive Descriptive about what candidacy for really means. And we have some intentionally loose definitions built in to allow for clinical judgment. For example, the term metastatic is not defined in a very narrow way. So is it really by conventional imaging, novel imaging? Does it include regional-only disease? You know, we leave that up to the clinician. And right now at Dana-Farber, and again, I, um, there's not currently a financial disincentive to, for providers for off-pathway treatment. So, as far as cost considerations, you know, we as faculty are not really performing a formal evaluation of cost versus quality adjusted life year, but we're hoping that by implementing pathways, we, expo- we avoid expensive treatments outside of their indications. So, for example, um, Stipulus L-T would not be indicated for metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer or non-metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. Pembrolizumab would not be favored in non-biomarker-selected patients. We wouldn't use one of these novel antiandrogens. It's purely adjuvant therapy after local therapy. And we wouldn't use um, the exgeva or zomita doses of the bone anti-resorptive agents in hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. But certainly in the pathways, we do recommend the osteoporosis prevention dosing for patients on ADT, so what is the prevalence and economic burden of prostate cancer so as uh, these are the cancer uh, stat facts from uh, two thousand and nineteen from um, the cancer.gov website, and the estimated new cases in 2019 is 174,000, and that's about 10% of all new cancer cases. The estimated deaths in 2019 is about 31,000, so the vast majority of patients who uh, are diagnosed with prostate cancer will not die of their disease. However... Um, Between 2004 and 2014, the age-adjusted incidence of newly diagnosed metastatic prostate cancer increased from 1.9 to 2.4 cases per 100,000. And and much of this might be related to the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force recommendations against PSA screening um, from their guidelines back in 2007. And over the past three years, again, this is not on the graph, the estimates of prostate cancer deaths from this website has actually been increasing. So in 2007, it was almost 27,000, 2018, 29,000, and 2019, more than 31,000. So uh, there's an increasing number of patients who are dying of prostate cancer over the last few years. And so again, as patients are diagnosed in the metastatic state, and they're not going to be cured of their cancer uh, by local therapy, the costs of cancer care Um, is going to increase by chronic treatment of their metastatic disease. And so this is part of a larger picture that costs of cancer care are going to rise dramatically this decade and projected to reach over $173 billion by next year. So, this is a cost effectiveness analysis of treatments for metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer. And I know the writing is quite small, but more or less, this is just a model. If you take all the um, treatments that have been demonstrated to prolong survival in metastatic CRPC and develop a model of sequencing one after the other, after the other, after the other, where do we get in terms of cost? And what you can see is that the total cost um, is about more than $400,000 per patient if they do receive all of these treatments. And so the incremental cost-effectiveness ratio um, is more than $200,000 if we uh, use this approach. And that exceeds the commonly assumed societal willingness to pay threshold of about $100,000 per life year saved. So what does that mean? It means that cost is a major barrier preventing the implementation of newer antiandrogen agents into routine use. And again, this is societal cost, but it's actually patient cost as well, as the co-pays for many of these novel agents are quite high. So the high cost of cancer treatment causes around 10% of patients to delay or decline care. And of course, there are higher rates in those who are in poor health or are uninsured. And as the therapeutic landscape continues to grow, major advances must be implemented in a cost-effective way. So how about disease diversity and treatment challenges? So um, I'll um, go through this quickly. Obviously, there have been many new approvals over the past couple of years uh, in prostate cancer, and they fall in different areas in the prostate cancer landscape. So there's been several new approvals in non-metastatic CRPC. Uh, We've had some approvals in metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. Um, The treatment options in first-line metastatic CRPC have not really changed much recently. But in refractory MCRPC, we're seeing some new data around PARP inhibitors in HR-deficient patients and pembrolizumab in mismatch repair patients. So what are our treatment challenges uh, this year? So again, this is just a subset, and this is really just me. Um, saying what my challenges are. And so what is the choice of initial um, agent for treatment intensification in hormone-sensitive prostate cancer? Um, Now that we have docetaxel, abiraterone, apalutamide all approved, and enzalutamide is is about to, um, what's the role for combination or sequential treatment? What's the role of local therapy or focal therapy um, in local or oligometastatic disease? And can we actually stop treatments uh, in some of these patients if they achieve a good response? In MCRPC, the challenges include optimal sequencing, again, the role of um, combinations um, and combinations to avoid. For example, we have data that radium-223 and abiraterone is a combination we might want to avoid. And then what's the role in timing of these biomarker-based um, therapies like PARP inhibitors and pembrolizumab, and what are some novel therapeutic strategies? So how about treatment challenges in locally advanced or very high-risk prostate cancer? Again, at presentation, is surgery or radiation better? What's the role of neoadjuvant concurrent or adjuvant therapy in relation to surgery or to radiation therapy? And what's the optimal duration of hormonal therapy, again, with localized um, treatment? And how do we manage recurrent or refractory disease, M0 hormone-sensitive prostate cancer or uh, local-only CRPC? Do you observe or intervene? What's the role for salvage local therapy? What's the role for AR pathway inhibition? And what's the optimal duration of systemic therapy? So I I was asked to um, speak on active surveillance And um, what should patients do while waiting for results? So this is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but patients who are um, on active surveillance are almost by definition not going to die of prostate cancer. Really, the question is, when do you treat and when can you continue to observe? And so they're much more likely to die of other causes compared to prostate cancer. So to intervene in too aggressive a way in an active surveillance state is probably not really a, a worthwhile effort. So... Diet, exercise, social cognitive engagement, quit smoking, remove firearms are really the best uh, advice that we can give to these patients. So what are we doing in clinical trials? So certainly we're, um, there are several trials of apalutamide. We have some vaccine approaches, proscovax and Cibulose LT. Um, again, curcumin, metformin, encapsulated rapamycin, hydroxyflutamide depots, you know, these are all uh, interventions that are being tested in clinical trials now. But again, the, the main issue here is that you have to consider the cost and risk of intervention and related to the outcome that you're trying to prevent. You're really trying to prevent um, radical therapy. You're really not Uh, going to make a huge impact on decreasing risk of death from prostate cancer in this particular population. So how do we navigate the rapidly evolving prostate cancer treatment landscape? And so what's the biological rationale for initial use of antiandrogen therapy in localized disease? So again, um, how do we manage very high-risk localized disease? And this was a... um, a paper that was published earlier this year, comparing what we they termed a max RP approach using radical prostatectomy to a max RT approach of using external beam radiation therapy with a brachytherapy boost plus hormonal therapy. And what you can see is that the survival outcomes, if you do a radical prostatectomy followed by radiohormonal therapy, compared to if you use this max RT approach, are actually quite similar. However, even in these ve- maximal approaches, there's still a rate of cancer death, um, even out to eight years after treatment, um, which suggests that we need better upfront treatments for patients with very high-risk disease. So what's the rationale for more intense ADT with local therapy? So if you go down a prostatectomy route, there's certainly um, a rationale for neoadjuvant treatment. It can decrease the risk of positive margins um, to decrease risk of local recurrence. It might delay or avoid the need for adjuvant or salvage radiation. It may decrease the risk of metastatic recurrence. There's the least data is for that third uh, aim. As far as adjuvant treatment, certainly you want to decrease risk of local metastatic recurrence after prostatectomy. And then the rationale with radiation therapy is to improve the actual efficacy of the radiation. Maybe it might avoid the need for um, boosting by brachytherapy, which has a certain set of side effects that are associated with it. And then adjuvant treatment might decrease the risk of local metastatic recurrence. So this is a summary table from a paper that was published earlier this year by my former colleague Dr. McKay, um, reviewing some data from prior neoadjuvant series of a targeted antigen pathway, um, Suppression, neoadjuvant, abiraterone and neoadjuvant enzalutamide. And in these prior case series, what you could see in the first box is that with goserelin, which is an LHRH agonist with dutasteride, there are very, very few pathologic complete responses. Um, and there's a couple cases of uh shrinkage of tumor volume to less than 0.2 centimeters cubed. However, with 24 weeks of abiraterone, or with the combination of enzalutamide, dutasteride, or luprolide, you actually are seeing a small percentage of patients with actual pathologic complete responses or very, very small amounts of minimal residual disease. And so the data from this paper, um, again, this is a very busy slide, and we won't go through it in, in uh, detail, where they um, compared enzalutamide plus luprolide plus abiraterone prednisone with enzalutamide plus uh, luprolide. Um, what you can see is that, um, and what I boxed, is that a lot of the pathologic staging was much improved compared to what this population of patients would be expected to be seen um At the time of prostatectomy, particularly in comparison to what would be predicted by Memorial Sloan-Kettering nomograms, and in particular, the positive uh, surgical margin rate was um, 12% and 18% in uh, in these two cohorts, again, which is much smaller than might be expected in this very high-risk population. So, um, to really understand, um, in a randomized, uh, trial whether neoadjuvant and adjuvant treatment might help in, uh, prostatectomy, uh, this is a phase three trial, Proteus, um, sponsored by Janssen, uh, with, a uh, principal investigator Dr. Taplin from my institution where patients with localized um, fairly high-risk prostate cancer are going to be randomized one-to-one to receive ADT plus apalutamide compared to ADT plus placebo, then receive a radical prostatectomy, then have another six months of treatment with co-primary endpoints of pathologic um, CR and metastasis-free survival. So how about with radiation therapy? So we have some um, data on abiraterone and um from previous studies, and then we have some ongoing phase 3 studies of these three agents. And so um, in two phase 2 trials of uh, abiraterone with uh, radiation therapy, uh, there certainly were uh, um, a very small number of biochemical relapses in this patient population. So again, with enzalutamide in the phase two uh, population, um, that has not yet been reported. Uh, but we're, again, anxiously awaiting the phase two result. But certainly the phase three study, where 24 months of enzalutamide plus ADT is being compared against six months of bicalutamide with 24 months of ADT, um, is going to tell us uh, with much more confidence whether enzalutamide helps this very high-risk population. And a similar uh, trial of apalutamide, which is called ATLAS, is being performed as well. And again, this is 30 months of apalutamide plus ADT compared to four months of bicalutamide with 30 months of ADT. So um how about uh abiraterone in a more sort of locally advanced kind of population. So um, this is data that you may be aware of, uh, which is from the Stampede study, where patients are being randomized to a standard of care approach, which is ADT alone, and a variety of different arms are uh, accruing simultaneously. So this is the study where docetaxel was added to ADT, abiraterone was added to ADT, local radiation therapy was added to ADT, and then you can look at all of those comparisons. more or less simultaneously compared to ADT alone. So um, you should remember what the eligibility criteria of this study is. Um, So it's newly diagnosed prostate cancer, any of metastatic node positive, or um, high-risk localized disease defined as greater than equal to 2 of stage T3 or T4, PSA greater than 40, or Gleason 8 to 10. So um, again, this is very, very small, but this is really uh, that first box is comparing patients with M0 disease, non-metastatic disease, with M1 disease. And uh, the second box is whether radiation therapy is planned or not. And there's really no good evidence of heterogeneity by these stratification factors, which means that the M0 patients seem to benefit from early abiraterone very similarly to the M1 patients. And so a um, dedicated analysis of the M0 patients was presented at ESMO a couple years ago, um, and this is 915 uh, M0 patients that were randomized to standard of care or standard of care plus abiraterone. Of these 915 patients, about 82% were planned to receive standard of care radiation, but those patients who were not planned for radiation, whether they were previously treated or there's a contraindication, were not excluded. And what you can see is that the failure-free survival really significantly favored abiraterone in whether you had lymph node involvement or not. So the N0, M0 population had a hazard ratio for failure-free survival of 0.14. The N plus M0 patients had a hazard ratio of 0.26. Metastasis-free survival also seemed to favor the abiraterone arm. Again, hazard ratio of 0.62 in N0, M0, and uh, 0.47 in N plus M0. Um, the overall survival for the N0, M0 population was quite immature with only 26 deaths. Um, the N plus M0, the hazard ratio, was 0.67, which is very similar to what the overall survival benefit was in the M1 population. So certainly there is evidence that even in non-metastatic patients that early abiraterone might uh, prolong overall survival. So um, how do we think of intense ADT in localized or locally advanced hormone-sensitive prostate cancer? So none of these agents are FDA-approved in this setting. So what we're really waiting for are the phase 3 studies, this Proteus trial for the neoadjuvant um, adjuvant apalutamide with prostatectomy, the phase 3 Enzirad trial for enzalutamide, and the phase 3 Atlas trial for apalutamide. However, based on current trial data, it's certainly reasonable c- to consider off-label use of one of these agents in locally advanced prostate cancer plan for prostatectomy um, and what the role there would be for pathologic downstating to delay or avoid the need for salvage um, radiohormonal therapy. Again, there's probably better evidence for and my studies for abiraterone with radiation therapy, based on at least lymph node positive M0 um, prostate cancer, based on freedom, uh, failure-free uh, survival benefit, and a signal for overall survival benefit in the STAMPEDE study. That is, the point estimate for um, of the hazard ratio for overall survival was comparable to the overall population. And uh, there is possibly some justification for abiraterone with radiation for M- N0, M0 patients based on the failure-free survival benefit in Stampede. But there you have to think a lot more about the risk-benefit uh, ratio because the overall survival rate is generally better in this population than for higher-risk cases, and so do you want to subject them to the additional costs and toxicities? So um how about uh adverse event profiles and management of side effects. So this is all all something tricky um that we all manage in our in our uh day-to-day lives and so uh, I was asked to talk a little bit about this today. So how can we compare these four agents? Because again, um, they were all tested in slightly different contexts. However, all four of these agents um, were tested in an M0 population. And in an M0 population, you expect a lot less confounding from symptoms and side effects from the cancer itself. And again, abiraterone is not approved in this population, but you can see from these four studies what the event, uh, adverse event profile was for the different agents. So for abiraterone, certainly the most common and AEs were related to the known side effects of abiraterone, which were hypertension, hypokalemia, and peripheral edema. So certainly there was not a very strong signal for cardiovascular toxicity in this M0 population, but you're probably aware from the larger phase 3s of abiraterone in both um, hormone-sensitive and in um, hormone-resistant prostate cancer that there was a signal for slightly higher cardiovascular event rate um, compared to placebo. Um, How about for apalutamide? So here, again, if you compare the apalutamide columns to the placebo columns, you can certainly see that there was... Um The rate of fatigue was maybe just slightly higher for apalutamide than placebo, but really the uh, adverse events that were more common were rashes. 27% of patients had all, um, some rash with apalutamide compared to only 8.5 with placebo, and there was a higher risk of fractures as well um, numerically. 6.3% all grades fracture compared to 4.6 with placebo. Um, seizures were seen, again, a couple more seizures in the apalutamide group compared to the placebo group. Um, In the uh, M0 trial of enzalutamide, which is called PROSPER, um, certainly, there was more all-grade fatigue than with placebo. Again, 33% all-grade with enzalutamide 14% all-grade with placebo. Um, there was a higher risk of falls. Again, 11% of patients had all-grade falls with uh, enzalutamide compared to 4% with placebo. And then there were these mental impairment disorders, um, generally some sort of um, cognitive dulling. And again, there were um, some seizures seen with enzalutamide that were not seen with the placebo at all in this particular study. And then if you look at um, darolutamide, um, here the adverse event profile does look a little bit more favorable. Again, the fatigue is just slightly more than placebo. Again, similar to what we saw with apalutamide. But here the bone fracture rate, the falls rate, um, and the seizure rate were actually quite similar to placebo. Again, um, a couple uh, rashes. And uh, again, the cognitive impairment and memory impairment was also very similar to placebo. And so, what's the biological rationale for this? It turns out that darolutamide has actually much less CNS penetration than enzalutamide or apalutamide. And so, this was a study that was reported um, earlier this year at GUASCO um, looking at in vivo tissue distribution data in rats. And what you can see is that the CNS penetration of apalutamide is about two-fold lower than for enzalutamide. However, the CNS penetration of darolutamide is around 46-fold lower than for enzalutamide and about 26-fold lower than for apalutamide. And so whether this is some of the explanation for some of the um, decreased risk of falls and um, memory impairment events that remains to be seen, and again, um, how this plays out in a real-world population, we we don't really know because it's not really randomized against each other. So, what are some patient comorbidities that require caution with abiraterone? Certainly, pre-existing edema, heart failure, or general fluid retention, severe hypertension, hepatic dysfunction um, are all uh, things that we have to be concerned about. If you can't fast for two hours prior and one hour after each dose, that's certainly a contraindication. And then there's a question about whether other cardiac disorders you know, coronary artery disease or arrhythmias might be a relative contraindication compared to the other agents and whether there's some contraindication to low dose prednisone. However, five milligrams daily is expected to be near a physiologic dose. So, um, we really don't know what impact, um, this low dose prednisone has on diabetics, for example. So how do you manage the side effects of abiraterone? Um, Certainly, we hold the drug if there's isolated transaminitis greater than five times the upper limit of normal, and you can resume when the transaminases are all less than 2.5 times the upper limit of normal. What this means is that we tolerate um, some degree of um, transaminitis in patients receiving abiraterone. This is unlikely to really uh, lead to permanent liver damage. Um, You could consider a dose reduction if you do get... um, transaminitis with uh, with a higher dose. Um, if there's concurrent hyperbilirubinemia greater than two times the upper limit of normal, that's concerning, and that's when we might permanently discontinue and treat with another agent. Um, obviously, we would treat hypertension and hypokalemia as needed. You might need to go up on the prednisone dose, um, but certainly standard hypertensives, antihypertensives and potassium supplements would be um, recommended um, the mineralocorticoid antagonists, something like plerinone, work, but they are more expensive and not usually needed. Um, if, the cardiac, if cardiac disorders are noted, it's best to stop the drugs. So if I have a patient with atrial fibrillation and it's getting exacerbated, I'll, I'll stop and probably switch to something else. Um, what are some comorbidities that require caution with novel antiandrogens? History of seizures, brain mets, um, on medications that can lower the seizure threshold, especially if you have history of strokes, falls, dementia, um, pre-existing significant fatigue and, and uh, advanced age, you know, for some people that's over 70, for some people that's over 75, we might have a little bit more caution in these agents. Um, so how do you manage those side effects? And certainly you need to uh, be, consult with your oncology pharmacist because all of these medicines have significant drug-drug interactions that you need to be aware of. In elderly patients with high risk for fatigue, you can actually start with a dose reduction. And if you experience significant fatigue, then you can dose reduce from there. Um, You would certainly want to um, consider bone anti-resorptive therapy for men with high risk of hip fracture based on the FRAX algorithm because of risks of falls and fractures with these agents. Um, How do you manage apalutamide rash? So grade 2 or symptomatic grade 1 rash, you would hold the apalutamide and initiate dermatologic treatment with topical steroids and oral um, antihistamines and monitor for changes in severity. If it goes away, um, then you can... um, start back and at maybe just a modest dose reduction. For a real grade three rash, you'll probably need topical steroids and antihistamines, and you might consider a short course of oral steroids. If it's not improved after a couple of weeks, they'll have to ref- be referred to dermatology. Um, and again, if they have a grade three rash, Um, You could consider reinitiation at a dose reduction. You might want to start at a 50% dose reduction and go up from there. Um, But if the rash is not resolved to better than uh, than grade one um, by 28 days, then you should discontinue. So how about um, clinical trial updates in metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer? And this I'll go through relatively quickly because, again, this is data that's been presented in much more detail in other forums. So what um, we know and what has been presented uh, long ago um, is that Uh, the charted study where patients with metastatic prostate cancer were randomized to ADT versus ADT plus docetaxel um, did show an improvement in median overall survival in the docetaxel group. Um, And one of the stratification factors was extent of metastases defined as high volume or low volume, and high volume was presence of visceral metastases or greater than or equal to four bone lesions with at least one beyond the vertebral bodies and pelvis. And what you could see is that um, data that was presented last year suggested that patients with high-volume disease um, certainly benefited from early taxol, whereas patients with low-volume disease in this study really didn't. The, overall, um, the hazard ratio for overall survival was uh, around 1 in the low-volume group, as you can see in figure B. Uh, one piece of information that we learned retrospectively from this trial is that seven-month PSA is prognostic in uh, mHSPC treated with ADT with or without docetaxel. So if you look at any of these three figures, ADT alone, ADT plus docetaxel, or all patients, the most favorable curve, which is this blue curve, is in patients who re- uh, achieved a PSA nadir of less than 0.2 at seven months, whereas the yellow curve is um, greater than 0.2 and less than 4, and that gray curve is the least favorable patients where the PSA nadir was greater than four. So in that particular population, we certainly um, might justify treatment intensification. So, again, there was another study of ADT plus docetaxel compared to ADT alone, and this is, again, split out by volume status retrospectively, and you could can see that ADT plus docetaxel seemed to provide a survival ben- benefit to patients with high-volume disease. Again, that's the left panel compared to patients with low-volume disease in the right panel. So what was just presented... Um, uh, at ESMO a few days ago was that uh, from the Stampede study where they also broke out by high-volume versus uh, low-volume disease, here they did not see um, any particular uh, difference in terms of benefit of early-dose taxol in low-volume versus high-volume. So why is there a difference? Um, to be honest, we don't really know but a hypothesis is that more patients in Stampede actually had de novo um, metastatic disease, whereas in the JETUG AFU-15 trials and in the started trial, charted trials, more of the low-volume patients had received prior local therapy. And we know from other data that patients who have received prior local therapy overall have an um, improved overall survival compared to patients who have never received prior local therapy. So that's one hypothesis. So volume status does not relate to sensitivity to docetaxel, but rather the patients who presented with low-volume disease and charted in JTOG AFU-15 could safely defer until CRPC given their favorable response to ADT alone. The patients in Stampede benefited from early docetaxel um, regardless of volume status, and again, this was thought to be related to more de novo rather than recurrent disease in Stampede. Um, There was no benefit to docetaxel seen in Stampede in patients who received radiation, so we generally would not uh, consider docetaxel in this particular population. So um, looking at the latitude final analysis that was um, published earlier this year, um, again, comparing high-volume versus low-volume patients, and this was um, presented at um, GUASCO last year, that here with abiraterone, it did look like both high-volume and low-volume patients benefited from early abiraterone. Um if you look at the um relap radiographic progression-free survival from the um, ARCHES study, which is, again, a similar population, plus or minus enzalutamide. Again, uh, over, in the overall population, radiographic progression-free survival uh, favored enzalutamide compared to placebo. And then if you look at the subgroup analysis here and uh, look down at the bracket, li- low volume and high volume did not seem to ha- uh, differentiate in terms of their radiographic progression-free survival benefit. And again, prior dose taxol or no prior taxol also did not seem to um, correlate with benefit um, uh, to enzalutamide or not. If you look at the ENZAMET study, um, which is, uh, again, there uh, had two endpoints, which is overall survival and progression-free survival, you can see that enzalutamide actually uh, increased overall survival and progression-free survival. And similarly, apalutamide, um, in the Titan study, uh, prolonged overall survival, uh, so any of these agents are entirely reasonable. Um, sorry, and Titan also uh, prolonged radiographic progression-free survival. And again, in Titan, you also did not see that there was a difference in the hazard ratio for the radiographic progression-free survival benefit for, um, in patients with high-volume versus low-volume disease or in patients who received prior docetaxel versus not. And again, um, looking in the other direction, where you compare the benefit to radiation to the prostate um, in low-volume disease versus um, high-volume disease, here you actually do see an overall survival benefit in the low-volume patients and not the high-volume patients. And so what does this mean? So um, we do think of uh, volume status as being a meaningful indicator of likelihood of benefit um, to therapy. If you have low-volume disease, then you, you might consider docetaxel if it's a de novo presentation, or abiraterone, or apalutamide, or enzalutamide, and you would also consider radiation therapy to the prostate. With high-volume disease, you would more likely favor um, docetaxel, again, or abiraterone, or apalutamide, or enzalutamide. Here, um, radiation to the prostate has not demonstrated an overall survival advantage. So how are we managing these patients nowadays? So we think all eligible patients should be offered treatment intensification upfront. The choice of agent, whether it's docetaxel, abiraterone, apalutamide, or enzalutamide, really quite depends on the costs and side effects in the context of patient comorbidities. So if you think of docetaxel as the um, mechanism that we're going to intensify treatment up front, it's the least expensive, certainly. You're done the treatment after six cycles, after which you're going to be maintained on ADT alone, And uh, another advantage to docetaxel up front is that many of these patients, again, are in their uh, early 70s. You can offer docetaxel while they're relatively more chemo fit because, you know, once they um, grow older and they develop other comorbidities, you might not be able to get in the docetaxel safely. Abiraterone is now generic. Um, So it's somewhat less costly than the other agents. However, the generic version of abiraterone we're finding is actually very similar in cost to the others. Um, It does require um, pretty significant monitoring of potassium, liver function, and blood pressure. And there's some concern for the long-term toxicities, including hypertension and prednisone. Um, And zoolutamide does require some monitoring of hypertension and LFTs as well, but potentially a little bit less intensive than abiraterone. Um, But there's some concern for neurocognitive issues, again, fatigue Um, memory loss, um, and depression. And apalutamide likewise um, requires a little bit less monitoring than abiraterone. Um, There is a risk for rash and, you know, similar kinds of neurocognitive issues. But again, in the absence of a randomized trial, we don't know what the relationship is um, in comparison to enzalutamide. So um, there's really no great data for concurrent docetaxel and androgen receptor pathway inhibitor therapy um, because in the Enzomet study and data that I didn't present, there were some increased toxicity seen um, in the, with the combination of docetaxel and enzalutamide compared to docetaxel alone. However, there was a radiographic progression-free survival benefit to enzalutamide that was seen after docetaxel and arches and with docetaxel and enzalutamide. Um, and so the question that we don't know the answer to is, does that RPFS benefit actually translate into improvement in patient outcomes like quality of life or overall survival, particularly in the subset of patients um, who don't respond well to docetaxel? And if you don't respond well to docetaxel, are you justified in sequential therapy in that population? So here's the case study. We'll go through it relatively quickly. Um, Here's a 70-year-old man that I saw. His PSA rose up to 12.6. He actually had very high-risk disease, Gleason 5 plus 5, involving 90 to 100% of five right-sided cores. And by the time I saw him, his PSA continued to rise um, to 23. It had doubled in only a couple months. His MRI of the prostate revealed extensive local disease with multifocal extraprostatic extension and maybe invasion into the mesorectal fascia but no lymph node involvement. His conventional CT scan and bone scan did not reveal metastatic disease, so if you go by guidelines alone, um, they would suggest um, radical prostatectomy followed by adjuvant radiation or radiation with prolonged ADT. Um, so despite the very high suspicion for metastatic disease, his pair did not cover um, novel imaging with uh, Axiobin or F18 fluciclavine PET. So we were able to enroll him on a clinical trial of a PSMA PET, which revealed, again, PSMA activity within the prostate, no evidence for suspicious radiotracer activity in the lymph nodes. However, there were many um, areas of OCS foci of moderate to intense tracer activity. And the reason that they weren't seen on CT scan, it was very subtle um, sclerotic changes on the CT scan and other areas did not have CT correlate at all. And so um, looking at this um, relatively um, high volume disease on a PSMA PET, they would not fall into a high volume um, population by the charted study definition. And so certainly um, different providers might favor a novel antiandrogen. The outside provider actually elected to initiate docetaxel. But if you look at our data-farber pathways, we're not you know, defining metastatic disease very, very narrowly. And docetaxel would be allowed based on our current pathways based on this presentation. So um, treat or wait. So how do we increase time to progression in early-stage prostate cancer and incorporate patient preferences? So as I had mentioned earlier, there is emerging evidence for the benefit of novel anti-androgens in localized disease by conventional imaging. Novel imaging can reveal metastatic dissemination in high-risk localized cases. We try not to use metastatic dissemination as a reason to um, not offer local therapy, but as a reason to potentially intensify therapy for better outcomes. There is evidence that earlier treatment intensification um, improves outcomes in metastatic prostate cancer. That's likely to apply to local regional disease as well. And so as far as positioning antiandrogen agents in clinical pathways, um, the NCCN guidelines actually do allow um, for abiraterone and prednisone or prednisolone in regional disease. Um, this is in the most recent updates, on PROS 10. But we're really awaiting the phase three results of the... Um, of the neoadjuvant and adjuvant studies, um, Proteus, Enzirad, and, uh, um, and Atlas, to really um, get that uh, both the guideline support and probably FDA approval as well. And thank you for your attention. Thank you very much. Yes. Do you want to take a question or not? Does anybody have a question right now? Otherwise, I'm sure you can reach out to him. Yes, you, yes, Please. Please. Yeah. Yep. <coughs> yes. But yeah. like in the best express analogous, there's this literature that says that the number needed to treat versus the cost that yes. Right. So, you know, when we're, again, as providers are making the pathways, um, we try not to um, take the cost ins- uh, considerations into account in terms of our declaration. We just say that both are reasonable. Um, because of that particular ki- um, superiority data, there are those of us who do favor denosabab because skeletal-related events obviously are a big deal uh, in prostate cancer. So, you know, it, we, we try not to say didosabab is not recommended based on cost. Great. Thank you all. Thank you very much.